Hi, this is Joe Van Wee, your host of All Better. I had a few announcements. If you're interested in subscriber content, which we're about to launch, this would be step workshops, cognitive behavioral therapy tools, and mindfulness practices that are approachable and can be very useful in reducing anxiety, rumination, and depression. Please send us a, a message on Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. And if you like the episodes that you've been hearing very much, please stop by Apple Podcasts. Give us a five-star rating and a small review. This helps us stay relevant in the field of content and helping people and their families with substance use disorder. Thank you. Hello, and thanks again for listening to another episode of All Better. I'm your host, Joe Van Wee. Today's guest is from Colorado, coming in from the Rockies. Her name's Kristen McIntyre. Kristen grew up in New York before moving to Pennsylvania to get sober in 2010. After 12 years of sobriety, Kristen has moved to the foothills of the Rockies. There she earned her master's in fine arts and creative writing from Colorado State University and started her own business as a copywriter for online business owners. She lives in Fort Collins, Colorado. What we talk about today is starting recovery immersed in a community and then leaving that community um, after getting on your feet in recovery and how to rebuild another one and then another community. And then as your interests change, how do your communities change in long-term sobriety? Just something we kind of stumbled on talking about. So let's meet Kristen. Hi. Well, I gave you an intro, and it's going to be a bio I haven't read yet that you haven't sent. But we're here with my friend from uh, Denver, Kristen McIntyre. Kristen, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Joe. Happy to be here. I, I always have this fear when, you know, it's a friend coming on. We start chatting beforehand. It's like, you know, 10, 15, sometimes it'll go 20 minutes. I'm like, is that everything that I could talk about? <laughs> Did I talk about everything that was interesting? But those conversations are um, so shorthand. You don't pick it up until you're on a podcast that no one would probably follow what you're rapping about. What, like, where we were just chatting? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, how's it going? Uh, how are the Rockies? The Rockies are good, you know? They're still here. Um, they're beautiful, as always. Uh, but life is good in Denver. And um haven't been back to PA in a little bit, but uh, hopefully I get to make it to Scranton in the next, next bit. Well, I want to talk about what brought you to there. And just for a little summary background, you grew up in Staten Island. That's correct. correct? Yes, I was born in Staten Island, New York, and I lived there uh, until my early 20s. To your early 20s? How would you summarize that experience, like hindsight now, from this point of view, looking back, doing doing 20 in Staten Island? Yeah, my goodness. Well, uh, to be fair... All of my experience in active addiction and in active alcoholism happened 
there, like in, in my young adulthood. And um, the reason why I came to Pennsylvania and Scranton in particular was to, to recover from alcoholism and drug addiction. So to sum up <laughs> my experience, yeah. uh, you know, um, in Staten Island, it was, it was really full of, um, it was, it was an active addiction time for me. So it was full of self-centeredness and, um, a lot of life blunders, uh, that I, I remember now. To, to just pry a little bit, what, at what age was using alcohol or any drug, other drugs so profound that you're like, you found something? And what did you find? Like, why, why, why did you think addiction rose out of that? Yeah, my gosh, what a good question. Um, for me, I started using alcohol and, and um, substances, I think around, just like every t- kind of typical teenager, around uh, 14, 15. Sure. Hanging out with friends, of course, which is almost everybody's story. Um and very quickly that that kind of unraveled into something that was completely unmanageable and i lived in that kind of unmanageability for five or six years until i was in my my uh early 20s and uh things just you know it really took me to my knees um what i found that kind of kept me there um was really i think just a sense of relief um a sense of uh, not needing to be bothered with too much around me, not needing to connect with people. Uh, well, I was a very kind of self-centered alcoholic and drug addict, as yeah. others uh, as others tend to be. So it was it was really just mostly uh, self indulgence. Would you would you ever characterize or describe it as like I hear it often? Do you relate to people? It's like it was almost like finding a medication, even though it's, you know, being inebriated or drunk from the age of 15 to 14 feels like an act of deviance. But to me, looking back from this perspective, it almost looks like a medication was introduced to my life. And I don't know if all people, especially in early sobriety, you you ex- see this, make the connection that some people addiction is treating something and a pain that might've already been there. Yeah. I, I think I can definitely, uh, that definitely resonates. Um, it was a medicine in a sort of way. Um, he, uh, it's interesting to look back and try to kind of parse what that medication was healing. Like, why did I yeah. need that? You know, why was that so comforting? Why was that kind of a refuge? Um, and, I, I really think it was a medication for, for not feeling like I belonged uh, yeah. anywhere um, and not, not finding meaning in, in the world, which is kind of a tragedy. Yeah. About it like that. Yeah. You know, it, it doesn't sound cliche to me anymore because I, I didn't grow up around recovery using the word connection. So, or maybe it just didn't mean as much as it does to me what disconnective feels like, um, yeah. you know, we're looking at hindsight, the beginning of an adolescence, you're at, but to be disconnected as a human being is it's profoundly destructive. <laughs> and why wouldn't a drug be like, like the way I hear, you know, smart clinicians describe it. 
the bonding that I was looking for happened with a drug and alcohol. And I'm like, you know, sometimes 12 step organizations or meetings, you don't hear that kind of language complexly in a meeting, like in a blue collar town. Yeah. But that's, I bonded with pot. I bonded with alcohol. I bonded with cocaine and it helped make me feel like my personality was okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're reminding me a little bit of um, something I came across in a, in an Emerson essay, Ralph Waldo Emerson, who's a um, American essayist. Uh, he talks about, you know, he, he says the reason why the world lacks unity and lies broken and in heaps is because man is disunited with himself. Uh, yeah. And I think when you feel that, when you feel disunited for yourself, even if you can't put your, your with yourself, even if you can't put your finger on it, yeah. that, that makes reaching for a drink or reaching for a substance, uh, just kind of the next obvious, obvious step. That's, that's the medication. That's, that's what it's kind of fixing. I, I, I agree. I know that statement well, and it's, it creates, you know, this its own caveat, like this paradox for me that where, where does my sovereignty lie versus the world? Like, where do I distinctly think I am consciously? Like, I didn't ask that when I was younger, but I could feel it intuitively that it was almost my existence was fraudulent. Like the, my relationship with other people wasn't sincere. There wasn't a fiber to it. But when I was drunk, that stuff disappeared when, when drinking worked and there was, you know, say the, the romantic periods of what drinking can do for someone. It's really profound. I felt like what I thought other people were feeling like, um, when I didn't have that, I felt this disjoined. If it wasn't in the, you know, the way you would express feeling less than low self esteem. Um, I don't, I, I didn't see the difference between the world and myself. The world had a profound effect on me. If something was happening in the world, it's happening to me. If something's happening to me, the world sucks. Um, I, I heard someone say the example once, if they woke up and the, the whole room was blurry, they go downstairs, the whole room's outside's blurry. At no point would a reasonable person think the world went blurry. They would think there was an issue with their eyes. But when someone has trauma or addiction, uh, that, that logic, it, it's hard to convey to them. You know, the, the world might not suck. Your mind's in pain. So the world looks horrible. But if you, you your mind gets better, the world changes. <laughs> oh my God. That's so good. Yes. Yes. I mean, that resonates so much. Um, and I, I think this is kind of dovetailing a little bit into, um, uh, writer in a spiritual, teacher that I had some experience with in uh, early recovery who made all the difference for me. And that was Anthony DeMello. Uh, and I know that, that you've read uh, Awareness by him too, Joe. Uh, Two years ago. Yeah. It's been a while for me too. I haven't yeah. revisited that book in some time, but um, Anthony DeMello really introduced me to this type of thinking. Like the things that you were just saying were the world doesn't, doesn't have to throw you for a loop all the time. You know, the world doesn't have to be this thing that bends or reacts or um, kind of treats you how, how you think, you know, you know, you should yeah. be treated or how it should react to you. And 
But that's kind of a form of selfishness that I think the alcoholic really suffers from. Yeah. We, we ask everybody around us almost to do how we would have them do, uh, behave yeah. how we would have them behave, or the world be how we would have it be. And when it doesn't respond to that, which of course it doesn't, uh, that feels personal. Um, and Anthony DeMello helped me kind of parse that it's certainly not personal, you know, and you can take back yeah. that power. Uh, and, and I found great relief in that. Yeah. The, um, we jumped around um, and I, I don't need to, I don't have to pin it to your story, but you, you got sober and you get the initial help, which, you know, to a clinician looks like cognitive behavioral therapy, an introduction to spirituality uh, through exercising the, the 12 steps, confronting a life of what we call resentment and pain. And you did that here in Scranton. So your addiction is frozen in time, essentially in Staten Island. <laughs> and Scranton was about a rebirth. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> How long were you in Scranton? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hello, my name is Joe Van Wee. I'm the host of All Better. I'm also the CEO of Fellowship House. At Fellowship House, we believe long-term recovery requires a personality change as well as a clinical intervention. These ideas can take several months to achieve. Our philosophy is to provide a safe, therapeutic, and exceedingly active environment for patients to achieve these personality changes and find joy in the fellowship of recovery, which will allow for long-term sobriety. We believe that recovery extends beyond treatment and peer-to-peer -peer communities into real life. In Fellowship House, we provide a design for living that focuses on education and service. We have strong relationships with the 12 universities and vocational schools in the area and ensure that our fellows pursue their personal goals while entering sobriety. We also stress independence and responsibility, making sure each individual is financially solid and self and helping to make their community a better place. As a treatment center, Fellowship House offers both residential and outpatient treatment services to individuals and families affected by addiction and alcoholism. We're a DDAP licensed provider of general outpatient, intensive outpatient, and partial hospitalization programming, as well as a level of care assessments. If you want to find out more information about Fellowship House, please visit fellowshiphouses.com. You know, it feels like I was there so long because it's such a significant time in my life. And I, I think I spent three years in, in the Scranton community. Wow. And what did that look like? What kind of, what were the bonds that were made, you know, you leave a life where you want to change. You want it to change. Your... What was the community here like? Because we were, we were initially talking that we would bullshit around what communities, the impact of a community does. So you have a, a community that matched your addiction. You're now separated from that. You're in Scranton. You've gone to treatment. Um, you're living with other sober people. 
What does that look like for three years? Um, it looks like a lot of uncomfort <laughs> and it looks like a lot of learning. <laughs> um, yeah, it was, it was certainly a time of, of, of growth of like relearning how to be in the world without reaching for those substances to kind of quell or quiet that, that inner disunity, right? So you take that bandaid away and then the, the alcoholic or the, or the addict really has to confront their problem, which is that um, we don't, I'll speak for myself. I didn't feel like I belonged very well anywhere. I hadn't found that sense of belonging yet. And being around a community of others who were really suffering from that same thing and also just trying to figure it out um, really started to heal that for me. It's I, I started to feel like I belonged with all those people who felt like they didn't belong, you know, and it, it kind of yeah. an odd kind of events. That was the first type of community that um, I really held dear to my heart that it, it pulled me out of that self-centeredness just enough uh, for me to find meaning in, in the world. And, and that blossomed from there. So looking back at that now, and I, I don't know the answer. I always try to figure it out sometimes with myself. Some things feel like when I look back at them and I'm being honest, I don't know if I could tell the difference if something happened to me or did I choose sobriety? Cause I've chose sobriety and it's failed. And then other times really good things just happened to me. Like no matter how I feel, like it, it, do you have that? Do you relate to that? Like your experience at Scranton, was it something that happened to you, or did you choose it? Uh, I, I actually think about this quite often, and I don't know either. <laughs> I I don't know. It's hard I, to answer. It's so difficult, and I I think the reason why it's difficult is because it's so nuanced, and I think it's a little bit of everything, right? It's a little bit of of you choosing it and it's a little bit of things happening to you and, and it's, it's, it's pretty gray, but, um, yeah, I, I don't know what the mechanism is like in the brain or in your mind. No, I don't know what it is. That switches on wherein you be, you, you kind of let the alcoholic disunity fall away, so to speak. And, and you, and you take those first steps into a brand new life. I don't know what the mechanism is that that kind of pushes somebody over that small threshold because I have also <laughs> tried to choose sobriety, right? Or, or, or choose something or try to be better and, and, and fail miserably at it. Um, Listen, if you were a proponent of stimu like simulation theory or some kind of matrix scenario is we're, we're trapped in some kind of fraud, any flaws. <laughs> Maybe we, love, we, love we think cognitively exactly. we're choosing things or we can tell ourselves that to accept. We might be just downloading new software. We're going from DOS, addictions DOS, and recoveries is Windows 94. And if you want to grow spirituality past Windows 94, you're going to have to do more <laughs> to get like, up to like Google Chrome. Now you could think like Google Chrome. <laughs> I have heard you talk about this theory for a decade plus. Um, <laughs> it's endless for me. I mean, it, it, it's endless you material. Love, you love this theory. Um, I, I, I don't know. Maybe it is just a simulation, but what's kind of coming up and what 
I'm kind of thinking about is I think the point is that it's important to keep trying. It's important to keep wanting to be better. It's important to keep trying to be better. It's important to keep remembering that there is something on the other side of that, you know, addiction, which is quite destructive. Right. And it it often boils down to a matter of life and death for the alcoholic or the addict. Um, and to keep trying because I don't know what the mechanism is. Like we were talking about, I don't know what makes sobriety works for me neither. It's yeah. You you described it. It is like going on, like something goes online and it's a different perspective because my perspective gets real limited, especially if I'm in pain or I'm anxious. Like I I see the worst and things and um, I don't want to be there because I, I don't see the difference when I feel better. The same exact scenario is could be right in front of my face. I could be facing the same things that are making me anxious and then they're not. So it's, it really goes to what there is a shortcut and you know, we'll get, I wanted to get to what you're talking about with Anthony DeMello, his book's titled awareness. And, you know, he, he, he's a unique guy because he's, he's, he's a trained Jesuit that's, that's schooling for 13 years in the society of Jesus and physics, mathematics, theology. Then he departs because his heritage is Hindu, which is a really far deeper and ancient religion than Christianity and nuance and beautiful traditions of mindfulness that Catholics or Protestants don't have in the forefront of their practice. He leaves what I could essentially see as the society and is kind of his own teacher in this hybrid of Buddhism. This book, which I knew you were, you, you, you know, at the third year, you're helping girls, you're, you're doing service work. You're taking people through the steps. You, did you, you shared this book with a lot of the people you were helping. What, what motivated you to do that? Oh, totally. Um, I would buy extra copies. I still have a stack of them. Um, and I was getting the books because I, it was so meaningful to me, this book. Um, and, the there's nothing truly, um, epiphantic about the book. There's no like epiphany that Anthony DeMello has that nobody else in the world has. It's just that yeah. this information hit me at a particular time that I was ready to receive it. And the teachings were quite simple, you know, very, very simple. Um, The idea that you don't have to get things to be happy. There's nothing missing from your life to be happy, but rather that you have to let some, some, some ideas of happiness that you have fall away, right? You have to relinquish stuff rather than get stuff. Uh, That was just revolutionary for me. I, I encountered that idea and I really loved that idea. And I think that a lot of the um, teachings that Anthony DeMello talks about in awareness in particular, and in another book, I think it's called the way to love um, really coincide with all the stuff that uh, we talk about in recovery. It's it's really all the same stuff is just put a little bit differently. Um, And, and yet those things are meaningful to me. What about you, Joe? Anything stick out from DeMello for you? Well, yeah, it did. I felt like I, uh, I was lost for a long time. And what I mean by that is that a, a, a version of me, morally speaking, ethically, uh, pure curiosity, 
to be a, a serious kind of, not intellectual, but just a curious, kind person was laid waste to because I was, I was in so much pain and some of, a lot of it was manufactured by myself too. I'm reading this and I forgot what it's like to be playful with life. I had grief. I was experiencing loss. I'm going broke, terrified, and I only feel like I could tolerate life if I'm mind numbing drunk or on narcotics. And, you know, removed for that for six months, I'm, I'm getting through kind of the panic that I'm going to be, I'm, I'm in, I'm committed to sobriety. I want to be alive. I read this book and I forgot you actually would give this to people. I'm picking it up and I'm like, I know this book. I, th I think I read it in college. I read that book. And like you said, I can't point to anything I remember. Like I can't quote it. But for the next two months, I, there was something profound happened to me and I started reading more stuff. I forgot what curiosity felt like, regardless of my situation, that my life can have, I can take a view of my own life from the sky. Like I don't have to be stuck in what's going on with Joe. Step back and take a look. Hey man, this is a bigger story. Take it easy. You're chasing stuff into like a snare. I'm running into snares because of what I thought would create happiness. I knew that stuff wouldn't create happiness when I was 18. Like where did that get, it gets lost. The cynicism takes over. Um, and I was, that's what woke up on me when I, I read that book again. I was like, holy shit, I want to, want to be a good guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You said, you said a word that, uh, I, I, I think about sometimes too, which is to be curious, right. To, to, to be interested, to want to know more, to, um, to want to learn, to explore. Those things were very absent for me in active addiction and an active alcoholism, they, they didn't really exist, which wasn't the world's fault, right? It wasn't what was happening around me. It was my relationship to those things. I wasn't interested, that curiosity, that wonder, right? That kind of like childlike playfulness, the, those things weren't a part of my life. And um, when I got sober, slowly but surely i mean i've been sober for 12 and a half years at this point and i'm still discovering you know new ways to to be curious um and to wonder and and that's the point of it all isn't it like that's that's a, a yeah, great life yeah so that so to stay on that that started here obviously and let's talk about it formally it started with a return to academic school here and did you know what you wanted to study in early, like to, a year or two sober, you, you jump back into school? Yes, I did. Um, that was a part of my curiosity and my uh, kind of an ambition coming back online. Um, I've always really enjoyed English literature classes. I always like to read. I like to um, think about stuff like that, literature and writing. Uh, and when I was sober a couple of years, maybe two years, uh, just relearning how to belong in the world again, I decided I wanted to go back to school and finish my degree. I had failed out of college as a, a 19, 20 something year old. And I wanted to go back to school and get a degree. 
And um, that became a great pursuit for me. I, I loved that challenge. I loved learning. I loved contributing to the to the academic world. And I started that in Scranton at a at a junior college at Lackawanna College. No, and it's a college now, Chris. You, you've been gone a long time. It's yes, a I have been gone a long time. Yes, at Lackawanna College is dear to my heart. And it's um, a great place. It's a great school. Finished my my degree in Colorado, and then went on to uh, get a master's in in fine arts at Colorado State University. So, let's. Well, if you don't mind, if I, I shift down a little, you moved to Colorado. That's a huge move from Scranton. What drew you to the Rockies? Like, was it the opportunity of a study in there? And, you know, anyone that's drawn to the Rockies, it's kind of, it's the environment. <laughs> oh, definitely. Um, a couple of things. Like, I, I think, and again, I'm, I'm just going to kind of double back to Scranton was the place where I found out that I still had a lot of life to live and that I yeah. was very intrigued by that. And I was happy about that and excited by that. Um, and, and those kinds of thoughts before when I was in active addiction weren't intriguing to me. Um, so, so getting newly sober, going back to school, um, and realizing that I had more experiences to experience, like there are things out there. Uh, I, I was ready to kind of chase that down. Um, the West has always been a place I, I romanticized. Uh, I'm sure many folks can kind of uh, relate to that. But being from the East Coast, um, the West was was some idea that I, I wanted to be a part of. So I, I moved to the Rockies. Manifest destiny. <laughs> yeah. The pioneer. Oh, uh, you know, the endless cowboy. Um, so you finish undergrad there. Um what was it like establishing yourself? You're three years sober. You're from Manhattan or, or Staten Island at three yeah. times. These are three major transformations. And then, you know, from 20 in your 20s, that's kind of three transformations of establishing yourself and making a community. Can you look back at it? That's what life's is that the worth of life to to do those things. That's what sobriety is about. How did you do that? Um, well, uh, moving up, like picking up, taking yourself and, uh, and moving across the country. And, and I did that with a dear friend of mine, um, who, who, you know, well, Joe, her name is Sarah. Um, we, we picked up and moved to Colorado together. So I, I didn't feel fully alone. I had a friend, a dear friend, yeah. who was there along the way with me to to laugh at the things that went wrong and and you know to troubleshoot. Uh, and that, and I'm, I'm very grateful for that. Um, starting over is scary, uh, fun, um, and. I, I, I'm not quite sure something I, I have the guts to do again. I don't know. It's, it's, kind, of a, it's kind of a gutsy move. Um, you have to rebuild a lot, right? And remember, keep in mind, what I was leaving was the community that had helped me yeah. discover the things that I was chasing down, that curiosity for life. So it was a little bit bittersweet, and it still is a little bit bittersweet, but very necessary, I think. So... 
you didn't, you didn't kind of take a break right from undergrad. Like you're you, now, you know, it's maybe, what are we looking at a year or two? You went right into graduate studies. You're sober. Um, what, what was your, what were you envisioning at the start of graduate school? Like what, what was the, the draw? Did you want to be a writer, teacher? Um, I don't think I, we never, I never asked you. I never. Yeah. That's a good question. Thanks. For, thank you for it. Um, <laughs> I don't know what I wanted to be. What, what I, what I was doing was, uh, pursuing something that I found great interest in. And if this kind of harks back, harkens back to what you were talking about, um, like being curious and finding wonder. Um, I have always, always been very, very intrigued. Like it's just a well of intrigue that doesn't dry up for me. In, when I think about reading books and, and writing poems and, and, you know, reading essayists, I, I really enjoy that kind of stuff. I find a lot of wonder there. Um, and I kind of latched on to reading and writing as this mechanism that was pulling me further into sobriety and further into my, my life. Right. Um, and I wanted to spend some time studying that thing. So I went to, to school for three years. I spent three years, uh, with a, a mentor, um, and, uh, wrote a, a collection of poems and thought about how, uh, writing works. And, uh, that was a really lovely so time. That's not standard though, right? So you're saying three years, that's not a stance. Is this a unique program? Is it more proficient in um, like a writing mentorship? Yes. So a uh, master of fine arts is a three-year master's degree and it's a terminal degree for creative writer writing. Um, there, there are some PhDs available for creative writing now. They're, they're kind of cropping up, but for a very long time and, and still today, having an MFA is considered a terminal degree if you're a writer. Sure. Wow. And so that's a lot of experience of, of writing. And I just, I'm always curious to like pure people driven by pure, like curiosity, a pure intellectual approach. What, at what point, like, how are you going to make a return? Uh, like, cause that's a ballsy thing to, <laughs> you love doing it and it's what you're drawn to. But, you know, you could be stacking up student debt. What What's the end game? Like, are you are you are you always feeling a safety net that you could just land at a school and teach while you're writing? Like, how does yeah. an English major? I never talked to. You you hit the nail on the head. And I think um, as I was pursuing a master's degree and as I was really, really just kind of diving headfirst into what I was intrigued by, um, I had a little bit of there were you know I didn't ask the questions that I would have asked now being uh, <laughs> that's that's good because that makes you a real maverick and that's people who change the world like sometimes <laughs> the best decisions I made I was too stupid to see that they were dangerous. One hundred percent. Yeah, hindsight is twenty twenty. Um, no, I I uh, assumed and and was excited by the by the idea that um, after getting my degree in writing that I'd be a teacher of, of writing yeah. at, at the college level. And I did that uh, for a year and also as a graduate assistant while I was getting my degree um, and, and then felt a little bit boxed in, uh, felt a yeah. little bit trapped in that, in that career path. So um, I've since started my own business and, and have found 
different ways to leverage writing skills, uh, but um, not 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 creative writing in, in particular. So you start a business, and that's not a common thing that I hear. Is that I just got a master's. <laughs> in liberal arts and in writing and uh, literary arts. And, and uh, I'm going to be an entrepreneur from this point moving forward. How do you describe to someone, let's start there. You start this business and that's, that's, that takes moxie. Everyone loves hearing the, a story of this. How do you describe your business? What did you start? Yes. Um, well, I'm a copywriter, so I help other business owners communicate what they do to their audiences. That's, that's really it in a nutshell. I'm kind of the bridge between a business owner and their target market. Lots of times okay. business owners are um, uh, really innovative. They have all these great ideas. They're selling products or services that are really, really wonderful. Um, but to get those products to market and to get them in the hands of folks who can really benefit from them, proves to be quite, quite tough. Um, yeah. A copywriter can come in and, and help that business owner communicate what they do with, with their target audience. So um, that's kind of my business in a nutshell. Uh, the, you know, the transition from teacher and writer into business owner was a, a bit of a mindset shift. Um, but to be honest, I can see so many things that I've been learning from Scranton, you know, um, that have prepared me, me to, to start a business. And, yeah, don't and, take shit from anyone. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's another new adventure and it's going really, really well. So that's. Yeah. Congratulations. Idea. And, and when you say, well, um, I think I, I know what you're saying. Yeah. I, I talked to you earlier this year that very few people get to to do that on a startup you're, you you you've you've made not only a flourishing business you have active and prestigious clients uh that need your copywriting um was that a big shift last question because i'm i'm asking on a i'm really am curious i don't know all the answers to the, you were always drawn to poetry and literature and writing um what was, you said it was a mind shift, a mindset shift. Uh, did that, does, cause does, does your writing need to include strategy now that you're not used to maybe like slowing the copy and thinking, well, what is the target demo? How, what's their lexicon? Is it uncomfortable to write something? Do you ever feel like you have to dumb something down for a product or like, what is that shift? That's a weird land to be writing in. Right? Yeah, no, it's no, I certainly don't feel like that. Um, <laughs> they're <laughs> just kind of um, different muscles, if you will. And yeah. uh, there's some, there's some serious crossover between creative writing and in connecting, you know, building something creatively. And honestly, yeah. Joe, that, that could be poetry, that could be any kind of art, that could be making yeah. music, that could be ceramicist, that could be painting. Making creating something requires requires strategy. Um, it requires careful thought. It requires troubleshooting. It requires like revising um, and and zooming out from big picture to to small picture. And um, that 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 totally presents itself in my copywriting work with my clients. It's just um, a little bit of a different muscle, but yeah. but communicating and making and building um, is definitely what I do professionally too. 
Yeah, I guess that, you know, it's hard at a disconnect because it does include anything I felt I've done creatively. It always was framed in my strategies and I don't look at it that way. You don't like to think of it that way all the time, like using that word, especially, you know, say 20 years ago, I would put headphones on. My creativity began with a dream or a story I could tell myself. Yeah. And would this be interesting enough to tell someone else? Um, yeah. But that's the strategy in that. Yeah. Well, yeah, I guess. Of course. Yeah. You're building like you're building. Like think of, yeah, I think about a poem the same way I think about architecture. You know, there's, there's hidden um, chords at work. There's, there's hidden structure there. Um, there's a purpose to, to why you put something there or, or why the, the poet might choose to start a new line. Um, just as there's purpose in, in music, just as there's purpose in copywriting. And in that regard, making art is kind of a nice, um, metaphor for, you know, trying to find some order in the chaos and make something meaningful out of nothing. Uh, and, and that, that's kind of what we're all doing here. <laughs> yeah. Why not? What else are we going to do? Why not? Sell insurance? I don't know. What am I supposed to do? <laughs> um, so 12 years in recovery and you're obviously you're open about your recovery and to the degree you're on a podcast talking about it, which is um, I think more common these days to people that want to not let stigma rise out of any of these scenarios. Recovery is provided a growing curiosity that brought you to graduate level studies to take a risk, to choose your pure curiosity over what might seem like a, a standard decision to pick a practical. And from that, you became an entrepreneur from just following your gut, your sensibilities and your passions. You started a business. So today, 12 years later, what do you do to practice what would be like, you know, self-care in the regards to still acknowledging you know, this all arose out of me confronting an addiction in my early 20s. You know, yeah. how, how do you still acknowledge that? Not is it looks looking back, does it look like another life? Like, how, how do you acknowledge it? So it's, I don't know, affirming or positive today. It's so funny. It does feel like another life. It does feel like a lifetime ago. Um I can honestly say that, and this happened for me a very long time ago, so I've lived in this space for a while, but I do not think about drugs or alcohol basically at all. Uh, the, those, and I, I believe that's in the, the, um, the uh, AA literature, yeah. you know, the, the promises of, of really just being free of that burden to just go ahead and live your life without worrying about substances or about alcohol. That's fully true for me. Um, which is kind of wild when you think back to that past life of how obsessive, you know, that compulsion was and how much brain space and how much time and attention and yeah. energy I gave to drinking and using substances and, and, 12 and a half years later, it's a, a fully give no, none of my attention to any of that stuff. Um, it, I've all, I'm also in a, a community of a couple of folks who just kind of by coincidence 
don't drink. Uh, so I, I really don't put up with a lot of it. Um, one of my very dear friends doesn't drink. It's not an alcoholic. He just chooses not to. My partner, Matt doesn't drink, um, not an AA or recovery in particular, just, um, you know, stays away from it. So I'm, I'm really surrounded by things, ideas, and relationships that have absolutely nothing to do with alcohol anymore. Uh, And they're saying, and you know, in your other description, it sounds like you're around people that enjoy being present in their lives. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's so lovely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah, It's a beautiful way to live. Yeah. And, and I, I, so, such a work in progress, just like everybody else. I, um, you know, I'm still learning who I am. I'm still, uh, figuring things out on, on a, um, like deeply figuring things out. Uh, (laughs) self-care looks different depending on what season I'm in. Um, sometimes I can work a lot and I forget to, to go outside, you know, and, um, go enjoy myself. And, um, (laughs) I've definitely found in these, in these last few years, found a lot of comfort in, um, in nature, which is, uh, a little bit cliche, but being able to go outside and be interested in that, um, find meaning in that is something that I find really calming. Yeah. It's universal. Um, it's hard to argue against it and its impact even in clinical settings, depending on a, a treatment center for location or any other mental health issues, the connection to the raw environment, I think sheds aside the anxieties and the neurotic kind of uprisings of what we call modern life that I always take for granted that like, you know, this is normal. Um, we spent hundreds of thousands of years making decisions only for 30 years of a lifespan that were life or death. And that's our, that's our OG home. Yeah. I don't know. Getting back there, it wakes something up at the cellular level. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And is and something else that reminds me of like just how small I am, which I which I find really lovely, is yeah. being outside and and in particularly in front of what we began this conversation with the like the Rockies, the mountains. Those these things that are ginormous, so big that you you feel how acutely small you are and you feel how how small your life is and some people might might say like oh that sounds so strange no it's so relieving you know that there's there's everything out there working there is order in the chaos and um i'm just too small to see it sometimes yeah well i think that wraps us up towards getting towards an hour to uh and on, do you have any parting ideas? And I hope this recorded well. I hate the stream one. I got to check after. <laughs> I hope so, too. Uh, I thought this was such a good conversation. Um, any parting ideas? Something that's kind of coming up that we already talked about, but it might be a nice, nice ending note. Um, is it, it is really important to keep trying, even when sobriety doesn't work. And even when it feels impossible, or you don't feel like it's going to, you know, uh, shake out in your favor, or you don't have the confidence to kind of try again. It's so, so important to just show up and, um, and keep trying because what's on the other side is just truly a life that, um, is so, so deeply wonderful. Um, that it's, it's, 
it's it's worth trying. It's worth trying for. It's worth showing up for. Well, I, I, I like that idea. And I know you're speaking from experience uh, of, you know, trying. And uh, you've been a very great friend to me and encouraging. I, I, I had some dark patches and I just by chance was was able to talk to you. Your encouragement um, and kindness uh, to people in addiction, it really did. It helped me limp back into I better I got to wake up from this. So um that's always appreciative and we're always looking to help another alcoholic or an addict. I mean, that's a debt you just can't repay once you from just saying that you break through that try. There's, there's, there's a bill on the other side. You got to help people forever. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and truly that, that's the community. That's it. You know, sometimes when we say the word community, I, I think folks get this idea that they have to be super extroverted and they have to expend all this social energy to like, quote unquote, feel like they belong. And that's a big turnoff. But really the community and the connections is exactly what you were just saying, you know, two alcoholics who give each other a ring sometimes and are like, yeah. hey, this is what's going on for me. And, and you can show up for each other. Like it's as simple as that. Yeah. And that's I'm being perfect. surrounded by normal people and they're awful. <laughs> 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 um, yeah, it's good to have a, a little subset tribe, and I, I'm, I'm always grateful for the term substance use disorder and alcoholism, which always seems like the obvious problem at first, but it, it really creates a brotherhood when you, you can identify what that problem is. You have friends for life. You do connect. You make a connection that's not cheap. Priceless. Friends for life. Absolutely. Oh, I'm going to sign off. Kristen, uh, I'll talk to you soon and uh, talk to you soon. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Joe. Thanks for the chat. I'd like to thank you for listening to another episode of All Better. You can find us on allbetter.fm or listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcast, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and Alexa. Special thanks to our producer, John Edwards, an engineering company, 570 Drone. Please like or subscribe to us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. And if you're not on social media, you're awesome. Looking forward to seeing you again. And remember, just because you're sober doesn't mean you're right. Hi, this is Joe Van Wee, your host of All Better. I had a few announcements. If you're interested in subscriber content, which we're about to launch, this would be step workshops, cognitive behavioral therapy tools, and mindfulness practices that are approachable and can be very useful in reducing anxiety, rumination, and depression. Please send us a, a message on Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. And if you like the episodes that you've been hearing very much, please stop by Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star rating and a small review. This helps us stay relevant in the field of content and helping people and their families with substance use disorder. Thank you.